Hello and a happy new year. Welcome back to the Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, the movies, and career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. After a short hiatus, we're happy to be back with our second season. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. This is episode 12 of the podcast. So if you're tuning in for the first time, you might also want to check out episodes 1 through 11. They cover the 60s and 70s. But today we dive headfirst into the 80s, Cooter's most productive decade. He only released three solo albums, but became a full-fledged movie composer, scoring no less than 10 films, eight of which were released as soundtrack albums. There were also some great Cooter productions, for example with John Hyatt and his longtime backup singers Bobby King and Terry Evans. More than enough great material for the next season of the Rye Cooter story. We start with a real treat, the Walter Hill Western The Long Riders. But beware, there will definitely be spoilers. If you haven't seen it yet, you might want to watch the movie first. So here we go. Cooter's first experience with composing film music came as early as in the mid-1960s, during one of his first collaborations with Jack Nitsche. But in addition to the creative and technical aspects of production, he also had to learn about the cruel side of the movie business, while working on the film Candy. The music that Nitsche and Cooter had developed together was rejected by the studio and replaced with another. Nevertheless, the duo was able to continue working on other productions. Watermelon Man, Performance, and finally Blue Collar followed, with Cooter contributing varying amounts to the soundtracks. According to an interview Cooter gave to Jonathan Romney for his 1995 book, Celluloid Jukebox, he was quite the movie buff at the time. He liked French and Japanese films, the surrealist cinema of Luz Bunuel, the post-war Italian films of Vittorio De Sica, and the hard-boiled genre films of Robert Aldrich. A self-described retro guy, he would have loved to score Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly, one of the darkest film noirs of the classic period. Of the great film composers, he loved George Delarue, Ennio Morricone, and especially Henry Mancini. He said, Mancini is just awesome. He's maybe my favorite of all. Anyone who writes Peter Gunn is a goddamn genius of the highest sort. So when he got a call from Walter Hill sometime in 1979, Cooter didn't have a music credit to his name, but he knew how the movie business worked. Hill, born in 1942, was an up-and-coming action specialist with an impressive list of screenwriting credits and three successful films under his belt, Hard Times, The Driver, and The Warriors. Now he was about to work for the first time in the genre he loved most, the Western. In fact, he would later say that basically every one of his movies was a Western in one way or another. The Long Riders already had quite a history of development behind it. The impetus for it had come from the acting brothers James and Stacy Keach in the early 70s. They wanted to adapt the legendary story of Frank and Jesse James and play the two main characters themselves. The project went through several stages on its way to the big screen. At one point it was a play, then a musical, later a TV series. But it was not until producer Tim Zinman took the material to United Artists that it became a feature film with Walter Hill at the helm. 
Hill's girlfriend at the time was a big Cooter fan. She had his albums and played them all the time. In addition, Hill had seen Cooter play at the Ash Grove on Melrose Avenue in the 60s and had been deeply impressed. When Cooter's jazz album came out in 1978, Hill, a history buff, felt that Cooter's interpretation of early jazz and country marching music would fit in well with his idea of a so-called Midwestern. Unlike most classic westerns, The Long Riders was not about the westward expansion and the emergence of American society, but was set in a new world that had long since established its own order. Also, Hill liked scores that were part of the environment of his movies rather than the factor that drove them, which seemed to be exactly what Cooter could provide. According to Hill, Cooter wore a big pith helmet, a t-shirt and Bermuda shorts when he came into his office. Hill told Rolling Stone magazine, So Wright came in, immediately told me he hated the album, wondered how I could possibly like it, and said he'd be glad to work with me. Of course the studio said, can't use him, he's got no credits. That just made me more determined. So we got hired, I don't know if he knew this, on a kind of trial basis. And from the start, he knew exactly what he was doing. Cooter added, I'd heard and played enough old-time Southern music that it wasn't too much of a stretch for me to create it. The film was about community and family, and I had to think what the music would have felt like in those days. It had to capture that early American aesthetic, which is a world away from how we live now. You have to sound authentic, but you also have to invent that authenticity. I had to imagine myself in another time and not think about what was happy, sad, or dangerous to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but what was happy, sad, and dangerous to Jesse James. I ended up concentrating on the scene's emotions, and the music worked fine. Cooter realized right away that there could be a future for him in the film thing, as he called it. He told the LA Times in 1986, They are making new films all the time, and somewhere, in all those films, there is a diversity that isn't in the record business. They even honor the use of abstract music, your ability to use resources, and be thoughtful or intuitive on that level. Film represented a challenge. It is packaged the same way the record business is packaged, but there is more room to work and grow in different areas. The Long Riders was shot mostly in Georgia, with the railroad scenes in Texas and California. In Missouri and Minnesota, where most of the movie takes place, the producers could no longer find the unspoiled vastness of the late 19th century. The filmmakers scored a real coup with the cast, starting with James and Stacy Keach, who vet the project off the ground and claimed the roles of Jesse and Frank James. All the brothers in the movie are played by real-life acting brothers. David, Keith, and Robert Carradine play the Youngers, Dennis and Randy Quaid play the Millers, and Christopher and Nicholas Guest play the Ford brothers, Charlie and Robert. Everyone involved approached the project with great idealism, with the Keeches even forfeiting their executive producer's fee when the movie went over its $7.5 million budget. That spirit was desperately needed because by the end of the 70s, the Western was pretty much dead. Many of the Westerns released during the decade, while now considered classics, were critical and box office disappointments. The high point of the decade was Clint Eastwood's The Outlaw Josie Wales, one of the few westerns to be well received by audiences and critics alike. The second half of the 70s saw almost no westerns at all. There were significant factors working against the genre. 
In the era of New Hollywood, directors were more interested in telling moody contemporary stories with morally ambiguous characters. In a post-Vietnam, post-Watergate America, westerns were seen as jingoistic and racist. Young audiences found the genre offensive to Native Americans and other minorities. They no longer felt a social or historical connection. Then came the science fiction craze following the success of the first Star Wars movie. No wonder The Long Riders doesn't feel like a classic western. Everything about it is different. The green landscapes, the long coats of the James Younger gang, the loose narrative structure. This is no cowboy movie, no heroic epic, no simple good versus evil. The Long Riders, Walter Hill said, is meant to be almost dreamlike to have the reality of a nightmare where everything is going wrong, but there's no focus to it. You don't know where you are or how you got there. The story is set after the American Civil War. The James Younger gang, led by Jesse James and Cole Younger, terrorizes the Midwest. They were nine men. They were four families of brothers. They rode together from Missouri to Minnesota and from Texas to Tennessee. They were the most famous outlaw heroes of the West. They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story. In between robbing banks and trains, now you don't give us no trouble, mister. The brothers retreat to the Missouri backwoods to live an almost normal family life with their wives and children. Excuse me, miss. I was wondering if you cared to dance. I'd be delighted. But a detective from the Pinkerton Agency is always on their trail. I want your sons, Mr. Samuel. What do you want them for? For robbing banks and trains, ma'am. What do you think your chances are of bringing them in? It's an amazingly stupid question. In September 1876, the gang travels to Northfield, Minnesota, to rob yet another bank. They got a real fat bank up there. Scouted it out myself, Northfield. But this time they are trapped by their pursuers. That's safe, mister, you hear? The Pinkett had told us he might be coming. They're robbing the bank! All but Frank and Jesse are captured or killed. The James brothers carry on for a few more years with a new cast of characters, until Bob and Charlie Ford shoot Jesse in the back to collect a large bounty. Ry Cooter spent three months researching the period. He came up with authentic polkas, square dances, waltzes, and other period evocations, and gathered a group of trusted collaborators. David Lindley played several string instruments. Jim Dickinson played organ, piano, and harmonium. Jim Keltner played percussion and drums. George Bohannon played trombone, sax, and horn. And Milt Holland percussion, drums, gong, and timbales. They were joined by old-timers like Tom Sauber and Kurt Bowders on fiddle, banjo, and other traditional instruments, and a couple of vocalists. It was basically a band that could have played together on any of Cooter's previous albums. Like most of them, it was recorded at Amigo Studios in North Hollywood, with Lee Hirschberg returning as recording engineer. Cooter produced the music. He told the Washington Post, It's nice work. I get to stay home and do it in the house, and it's an excuse to call up strange musicians, which is one thing I like to do a lot. I try to get a handle on what instruments, sound, and overall idiom I'm going to establish for the picture, and then I put the pieces together. Walter Hill was also pleased with the collaboration. In 2012, he recalled, I like the way Rye worked. We go into a studio, and he try various things, and we go back and forth about the ideas almost like making the record. It's a terrific process, 
and a lot of fun. He's an unbelievably talented guy. The film and its soundtrack album open with the title cut. Cooter arranges the theme for a small orchestra of guitar, dulcimer, harmonium, piano, bass, banjo, fiddle, mandolin, and percussion. The majestic western song accompanies the title sequence as the gang rides in slow motion across the lush green Missouri prairie. Fred Metting called the instrumental, Pure Americana sounding like the distilled essence of much of our rural music. For critic Michael Framer, the regal-sounding theme sets an almost incongruous tone to a movie about gangsters, but that's probably necessary if the audience is to have any sympathy for the characters. Right after the title track, it becomes clear how Cooter understands his new mission as a film composer. He is not making movie music, but music for movies. In concrete terms, this means that the first robbery, like all the ones that follow, does without any background music. The same goes for the subsequent scene in which the gang breaks up with Et Miller. Only when the movie stops for the first time in a saloon, does Cooter come into play. Here, the music comes directly from the surroundings. A small fiddle band entertains the patrons with a tune we remember well from Cooter's album Goomer's Story. The patriotic rally round the flag, which was very popular among Union soldiers. And although he may be poor, not a man shall be a slave. Shall in the battle try free. You boys hear what I hear? I hear it. When Cooter first recorded the song in 1972, it sounded dark and painful. It was almost the opposite of a military motivational piece. And although he may be poor, not a man shall be a slave. Shout in the battle cry of freedom. So we're springing to the call from the east and from the west. Interestingly, Cooter recorded the piece a second time for the soundtrack album. It features a reggae treatment along with four-part harmony vocals by Cooter, Pico Payne, and Joe and Lester Chambers, but this version does not appear in the movie. It cannot be completely ruled out that it fell victim to the editing process. It is more likely, however, that Cooter really wanted to record the song again, perhaps also to add some spice to the Slim album. He said, I couldn't resist that in the film somebody sings Rally Round the Flag that was written to be a rallying song at a time when the Union Army was losing the war. But if you bend the lyrics a little bit and write them from the point of view of the emancipated slave, you have a whole different kind of song. In other words, everything's going to be okay. We're out of it now. We're headed north, and the expectations are that life will open up. But the historical irony is that life clamped down on the emancipated slaves. Yeah, 
As it turns out, our guys are not so happy with the Union anthem. As true Southerners, they had sided with the Confederacy at the beginning of the Civil War. Later, they had joined pro-Confederate guerrilla organizations as fighting secessionists. In the movie, one of them will say that they spent four years in the war and eleven trying to get out of it. In the saloon scene, they forced the poor musicians to play a song called I'm a Good Old Rebel. It's an anti-unionist song that expresses hatred for the U.S. and its symbols like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. The singer is clearly reluctant to accept reconstruction with the United States. That's Mitch Greenhill on vocals, Bill Bryson on banjo, and Tom Sauber on fiddle. Cooter had no active role as a musician on this song. Some critics complained that the use of the song wasn't historically accurate because it wasn't copyrighted until 1914, but in fact it was first written as a poem in the 1860s. It is not known who created the music, but it is certain that both the poem and the song became widely known among Southerners during the Reconstruction period following the surrender of the Confederate States. During the rather long saloon scene, the band plays a few more fiddle and mandolin tunes. This is pure, unobtrusive background music, which is why it didn't make it onto the soundtrack album. However, another, much more prominent fiddle tune is on the album. It is appropriately called I Always Knew That You Were The One, and it underscores the scene in the country where Jesse proposes to a woman named Z. It is a delicate, romantic piece, perfectly intoned on period instruments. David Lindley and Tom Sauber are on violins, Kurt Bowders on dulcima, Cooter on bagio sexto, and Bill Bryson on bass. The ensuing stage coach robbery has no music at all. This is followed by another saloon scene with unobtrusive background music from a fiddle band. It is only later, at Jesse James' lavish wedding, that things get interesting again musically. A band plays lively dance music, the Seneca Square Dance to be exact. It was a popular tune among regional fiddlers at the time and had a long history in the United States. It was either named after the Seneca Indians, who were relocated to Oklahoma after the War of 1812, or after the town of Seneca, Missouri, which itself may have been named after the Indian tribe. It was recorded in 1926 by Fiddlin' Sam Long of the Ozarks. Despite the rather poor sound quality, it sold well in the Midwest and West.
Cooter's version, of course, has much better sound quality and features some nice work by Kurt Bowders on dulcimer and David Lindley on fiddle. wedding band plays two more dance polkas that are not on the record. The band members are mostly in the background and out of focus. It may well be that Cooter is in one of the shots, but he is not credited and it is really impossible to tell which of the musicians he might be. However, ten more minutes into the movie, he is more than present, if only acoustically. Meanwhile, the Pinkertons have really turned up the heat on the gang, even blowing up Frank and Jesse's mother's house. In the process, Jesse's 15-year-old half-brother Archie is killed, resulting in a moving funeral scene. Archie Peyton Samuel was an innocent boy. It's a sad day when murder is committed in the name of justice. This act tries the forbearance of good Christian men. We commend this child's body to the ground. The scene is accompanied by Cooter's soulful bottleneck guitar. The song is called Archie's Funeral and it's the kind of aching, mournful blues that recalls Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night as played by Cooter on his first album. It is also, of course, the style that would make Cooter famous a few years later with his score for Paris, Texas. After another long stretch without music, during which the gang narrowly escapes arrest by the Pinkertons and goes into hiding for the time being, there follows a scene in which Frank James and his wife are supposedly riding in a carriage into a new future. Cooter's accompanying music, however, tells a different story. Although the song is called Better Things to Think About, it contains so much melancholy and sadness that a feeling of hope cannot even arise. The aura of futility surrounds the James Younger gang from beginning to end. Even in an early scene, one of them says, I guess we'll just keep on going till they lock us up and hang us. As mentioned, there are some fiddle and dance tunes in the movie that aren't on the album. On the other hand, there are two more songs on the album that are not in the movie. The first one is called Wildwood Boys. It's a Rye Cooter Jim Dickinson composition with a lead vocal by Jesse James actor James Keach. The lyrics basically tell the story of the movie in a nutshell, concluding, The victory goes to the strongest, and only the strong will survive. Survival is living the longest, but nobody gets out alive. We was just young wildwood boys 
as the birth of the nation, the kind that the army employs. I ride in revs from Missouri, fought for the Grand Quadrille. The second song is not even a real song. It's called My Grandfather and features an old ex-Confederate soldier, played by John Ford regular Harry Carey Jr., defiantly recalling what his grandfather told him about Jesse James, backed by a gentle and soulful banjo. Some of the music is used in the scene where all the gang members are seen with their respective spouses just before they all gather for their last big robbery at the bank in Northfield, Minnesota. Now that's the story that my grandfather told me when I was just a boy. And he said that Frank James at that World's Fair, I think it was 1901 in St. Louis, him and Frank were both there. My grandfather and Frank James were together there. And that Frank James offered to bring Jesse there alive. He said that the man that the Ford boys killed wasn't Jesse James at all. Next is another saloon scene, this time Cole Younger played sublimely by David Carradine, gets into a knife fight with James Remar's hoodlum. In the background is more polka music, aptly titled Cold Younger Polka. The movie remains true to itself even in its big climax, the almost 15-minute action sequence in Northfield. No matter how dramatic the action, it remains free of any classical film music, which is usually there to emphasize and heighten the emotions. Hill and Cooter forego this trunk card. They don't go for realism. The production, with its many slow-motion shots, is too stylized for that. But they also don't want to paste over the action. Only when the surviving gang members begin their retreat and ride through the woods as escape from Northfield begin to play. It is a moving lament that leaves no doubt about the outcome of the mission. It is delicately orchestrated with David Lindley on chumbus and tambora, Kurt Bowders on dulcima and banjo, and Milt Holland on the finely resonant gong. Another tender swan song is Leaving Missouri, with Cooter on banjo and Lindley on chord zither. has dug up a more than appropriate traditional folk song for the closing credits. 
Jesse James dates back to the 19th century and has been interpreted many times, including by folk greats Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, as well as Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen. The first recording, however, was made by Bentley Ball in 1919. The lyrics are largely biographical and include a number of details from Jesse James' life, portraying him as an American version of Robin Hood, although there is no evidence that he ever actually stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Cooter not only changes the lyrics, he completely reinvents the song. Fred Metting wrote, The song begins with mandolin, then guitar, then drums, and several stringed instruments present the Jesse James traditional melody in a rosing, upbeat, ensemble context. There is a brief halt, then Kurt Bowders plays the melody on tin flute backed by a drum, and the effect is of a military march. The tune goes upbeat again, and Cooter sings of the James gang robbing the Union train. The song narrative then turns to the cowardly Ford shooting James. We hear of Jesse's poor wife and children who must now continue. Political complexities and ironies aside, Pierre's percussion helps propel Jesse James through several rhythmic changes in Cooter's adaptation, which manages to be, at turns, meditative, a danceable romp, and a military march. The traditional message of a man, in many ways good, shot down by a Judas-like coward, remains intact. In this small home unaware, a straightened picture's there. Director Walter Hill was full of praise for Cooter's first original soundtrack. He said, As to Rice film music, suffice it to say that it doesn't work in the traditional manner, doesn't underscore as much as it envelops, doesn't heighten the moment as much as it adds to the atmosphere. It surrounds the story, supplies missing information, champions the mood rather than the event. Cooter told Bay Area Music Magazine in 1988, Film music is seldom in the form of a song, so the structure is different. You're going for mood and tonality rather than real apparent structure. You don't have choruses and verses, which can be inhibiting sometimes and so repetitious. Here we are at the chorus again. Oh boy, here comes another verse. I get kind of weary of that. 
It's fun to just do sounds and pick up on the rhythm of the visuals. Let it seep into my mind. Then I might think of something almost without thinking. It becomes intuitive. This process. It's comforting, fun, even soothing. It feels nice to go home at the end of the day and know that from nothing came something. One day after its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, The Long Riders was released to mixed reviews in American theaters in May 1980. Variety wrote, Director Walter Hill resolutely refuses to investigate the psychology or motivations of his characters, explaining away men's life of banditry as a habit acquired in wake of the Civil War. What's ultimately missing is a definable point of view, which would tie together the myriad events on display and fill in the blanks which Hill has imposed on the action by sapping it of emotional or historical meaning. The Los Angeles Times said, This hollow and tedious outlaw saga may feature an unprecedented number of brothers, four stets, no less, in the leading roles, but it's no family film, that's for sure. Newsweek wrote, The story seems more reenacted than acted, and one is finally more impressed than moved. Only David Carradine's cool, Manji Macho as Cole Younger, and Pamela Reed's jaundiced wit as Bell Star cut through the tempered, elegiac surface. Yet The Long Riders is still the best Western in many years. It has the laconic elegance of a ritual. About the soundtrack album, All Music's Stephen McDonald said, Cooter was in fine form with this score, using original material, unusual and anachronistic instruments, and elements of traditional songs from the Civil War period. As a result, the album can be appreciated as a unique entity, away from the film, and bonded to the film, the music provides grace and power to the on-screen events. The Long Riders did not recoup its production costs in its first run, making it a commercial disappointment. A year later, James Keach wrote an open letter to the Los Angeles Times, insisting that not only had The Long Riders not been a flop, it had actually made United Artists a profit. For Ry Cooter, the project was definitely a success. His sensitive score undoubtedly recommended him for further film work. He'd also won the first major award of his career, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association's Award for Best Original Score. In a 2014 interview with Uncut Magazine, he summed up the experience. It was a nice job, and it went well, and me and Walter got on real well. So I kept working for him. He liked this kind of indigenous approach, such as you might call it, whatever music the time and place sounds like. He didn't care much for the overlaid score, which is compositional and geometric, if you see what I mean. I couldn't do that anyway. We all understood that. If that was the need, I wouldn't have been there. So those films that I worked for him on, they all seemed to accept it was a good fit, as they say. And that brings us to the end of episode 12 of the Rye Cooter story, the first episode to focus exclusively on Cooter's film music. Many more will follow, but before we turn our attention to the next movie project, Cooter's next solo album is on the agenda in two weeks' time, Borderline, which, like The Long Riders, was made in 1980. I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to Patreon. As always, you can find all the links in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time.